Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. My guest today is Dr. M. Sean Copeland, Professor Emerita of Theology at Boston College and one of the most distinguished religion scholars of our time. Dr. Copeland has written and spoken widely on a range of topics from theological anthropology to black Catholicism and political theology. Her most recent book is Knowing Christ Crucified, the Witness of African-American Religious Experience. Dr. Copeland is a former president of the Catholic Theological Society of America, and she was the first black theologian to hold that role. She is also a recipient of the Society's highest honor, the John Courtney Murray Award. I asked Dr. Copeland for her take on the rise in anti-racist protests around the country and beyond. We also discussed the ugly legacy of racism within the American Catholic Church and how we can all work to make the church more just and equitable. Stay tuned at the end of our conversation for a fabulous new spirituality resource titled An Examine for Racism. The examine is one of the signature practices in Jesuit spirituality, and it typically involves reflecting on the events of your day and searching them for God's presence and asking for the grace to grow in faith, hope, and love. This particular examine invites us to search our hearts to reflect on how we participate in systemic racism. It also invites us to look forward to see how we might take a stand against racism in our own lives. Two Jesuits, Patrick St. John and Christopher Alt, collaborated on this project, and I'm very grateful to them for creating it. Thanks for joining us. Well, Dr. M. Sean Copeland, welcome to AMDG, and thanks so much for taking some time to talk with me today. How are you doing? Uh, perhaps like everyone else in the country, uh, a little unsettled or a lot unsettled, uh, depending on uh, your perspective on some of these, some of these matters. Um, thank you, uh, first of all, uh, for inviting me uh, to speak with you uh, today um, about uh, our church and our country uh, at this really crucial uh, moment uh, when a number of issues are colliding uh, in in front of us. We are we are making history as we as we speak. Uh, all around us, different groups of people are coming together around serious issues, um, and you could use the large word, I guess, or umbrella word, health. Um, just uh, physical health through our concerns about the COVID-19 virus, which has affected um, millions of people here and over 120,000 people have died already. And the incredible way in which we've come to understand racism as an issue of public health, um, a public health certainly for black and brown people, a public health issue for all people who live in the United States. Yeah, asking a question about how one's doing these days opens up all kinds of, of things. You know, uh, yes. a loaded question for sure. Um, and I just I'm happy to, again to to welcome you on just because of as you've mentioned, so many different things colliding in the discourse now or in in our country, things that are on our minds and hearts every day. And just yes. again, I think of you as someone in, in your scholarship throughout your career have kind of been wrestling with those things for a long time, uh, kind of digging into those issues, especially again where, where questions of of church, 
and race and Catholicism, all those things come together. Uh, so maybe if we could start, you just share a little bit about your own background. Uh, what drew you into uh, the practice of theology? Uh, well, uh, I owe my Catholicism really to my grandmother, who was a convert to Catholicism. And I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Um, at that time in the 50s, uh, cities uh, were segregated, not perhaps in some instances intentionally, but certainly we know um, by way, intentionally by way of uh, home ownership in the sense of people selecting where to live. But we also, we've learned, of course, that redlining has been really a part of this, that banks in terms of giving loans to certain groups of people or certain individuals who are a parts of certain groups and not to others. Um, so I grew up in Detroit and uh, my grandmother was Catholic and uh, she passed on that Catholicism to me. Um, I grew up, uh, I grew up as a Catholic and uh, my mother in, uh, is very much alive. Uh, my father died when I was three years old. So I've lived with my mother and my grandmother. Uh, I lived with them my entire life. And uh, I guess I could say that uh, I, I recount this and I've said this before, so it, it's nothing in a sense new, but it is true that I went to summer school uh, when I was, um, going, I was about to go into the seventh grade. I went to summer school because I had nothing to do. I didn't want to go to camp. And I took a course in world history. And in that course, uh, on world history, we covered the second world war. So I learned about, uh, the attempt to destroy the Jewish people. And I found it, uh, shocking and reprehensible. And I remember the day, uh, standing in our kitchen, making my lunch or doing something innocuous and, what came together in my mind was an admonition my grandmother often said to me. And I'm sure she said it uh, because I was an only child. I am an only child. And people have this idea that only children are spoiled. She used to say to me, everybody can't like you. And I was standing there and it occurred to me at that moment, if people don't like you and they have power over you, then they can kill you. And it seemed to me to try to figure out how, how does this work? And so for a time, I really wanted to be a lawyer. I thought you could help with good legislation. You could argue cases. And of course, by the early 60s, this was really important because people were making reference to Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, people were referring to the way in which the legal means of desegregation had begun. But uh, what also occurred to me is that people can change laws, especially if you're in power. You can have laws changed uh, to your preference. And so uh, what I thought was maybe there's another way toward this. And I had a very active religion teacher who had a friend who studied theology. And so I thought this is very, I suspect at the time, I, I recognize it now as kind of avant-garde because few women uh, in this, by the 60s were studying theology. And this particular Felician sister had a friend who had studied theology, uh, who was also a Felician sister. And so this sort of clicked in my mind that this might be a way to both change minds and hearts at the same time. Because another admonition my grandmother often said to me was, if you can't heal bodies, heal souls. And so how it's a very sort of uh, Socratic midwifery kind of approach uh, to change, that you midwife new ideas, you midwife uh, new 
desires of the heart. And so uh, it seemed to me uh, very early on that theology might be something that one might engage in that might have some lasting effect on people's lives and therefore on social life together. So as a theologian and as someone again steeped in history, as you're kind of watching things unfold uh, over the past few weeks, again, very clear that we're living in this historical time that we'll tell people about and I'll tell my grandkids about uh, someday, um, that uh, things, yeah, as this has been happening, what has been going through your own heart and mind? Like, what, Where have you found yourself uh, moved? Uh, yeah, what what's your thoughts been? There are great sort of mass of emotions. Uh, there's uh, profound sorrow, uh, deep anger, uh, moments of resignation. Uh, the sorrow is that uh, after 400 years, we're here. Uh, the anger is that after 400 years, we're here. And the resignation, which I'm struggling against, is that... Um, this is how it was, this is how it is, this is how it will be. And I, I really don't want to resign myself to that. But it seems as if, um, as if we, we can't get beyond uh, this incredible impasse. Um, it's a phrase that, that I've learned in a very deep way from uh, the work of Sister Constance Fitzgerald, who is a Carmelite uh, theologian, uh, at the Baltimore Carmel in, uh, well, in the Baltimore Carmel. And um, uh, it, this impasse, we can't seem to go forward. And uh, we're, we're sort of stuck in this incredible struggle. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking. And it's, it's so painful. I find myself enormously tense, as if I'm just holding myself. And um, so, so, so sometimes I cry, sometimes I pray, sometimes I scream. Uh, I do, I have a lot of different, different emotions. I feel that um, it's, it's a plea in my heart for understanding. And in some ways, that plea um, is, is being made um, or being responded to being responded to in uh, the actions, particularly of young uh, white people, young people of European American descent who are protesting and marching, who are insisting that black lives matter. And they recognize that by saying black lives matter, they're pointing to sort of the canary in the coal mine, if you like, in the coal mine, if you like that expression, that in fact, if something is happening to these people, it's eventually going to happen to us all. And so if we can respond to this cry, we're responding, yes, to that cry, but also we're responding to a situation that impacts us all. And so feeling at impasse, it's, this is again, uh, this is Sister Fitzgerald's interpretation of St. John of the Cross. We're in a kind of societal dark night and we're trying to find our way out of it. And this uprising, gathering together of young people uh, to affirm this struggle, on the one hand, it's enormously hopeful. It's enormously hopeful because it says 
as I've said to some uh, colleagues, it reminds me that the last 50 or 60 years of ethnic studies in the university, of Latinx, Chicano studies, of Black studies, African studies, African-American studies, of Asian studies, ethnic studies, have really opened history and society to young people, bringing together uh, a number of strands of uh, analyses in terms of economics and politics and culture, so that they have begun to understand some of the fault lines in our society and are trying to find ways to heal those. So that's enormously hopeful because that means that those who are marching have some resources. At the same time, I I resonated so much with an op-ed piece that Charles Blow wrote in the New York Times the other day. And he said, white allies don't fail us again. It's it's what King said. It's um, He said it much more eloquently than either I'm saying it or even Charles Blow said it, that in fact, um, the roots of racism are so deep in the American psyche that it passes for national life. And, and some of that passing for national life is symbolized by these monuments, uh, by the Confederate flag. Uh, if people really understood uh, what, what that was about, what it meant at the time, what it was made to memorialize, and the meaning that it's conveying to people today, they, I would pray that they would think differently about those symbols. So, so I think, um, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's a tumultuous time trying to get through this, this impasse to which, we, which we've reached. And I think we are all struggling in that way, whether we are praying, uh, whether we are marching or protesting or writing or teaching, uh, whether we are raising our children, whether we are feeding other people, whether we're still visiting prisoners, trying to break through all kinds of barriers really to reach one another, to reach one another. I think about the the role of the the biblical prophets to kind of criticize the empire when people have gone astray and have started to oppress those who are on the margins, uh, yes. who do that criticism, but then also that that energizing, especially to the people who are who have been oppressed, to say no, like yes. the God is with you. Yes. Do you see any resonance kind of around us today of some of those the tradition of biblical prophecy? Well, you know, I think you could say uh, it, it's easy to name prophets and. Uh, you know, you could say Reverend Barber is a prophet for us right now. You could say that, incredibly for some people, Al Sharpton has become prophetic for people. We could also say that prophecy is sort of, Metz has a phrase, parenthetically, Metz has a phrase, chips of messianic time. Well, maybe all the protesters are a little chips of prophetic time moving through our society, trying to awaken our consciousness and and to awaken our conscience. And so I think, yes, there is great resonance uh, in our tradition. Um, And if you think of uh, the prophets, I mean, you think about, we've been reading Elijah in the lectionary uh, a little bit lately, and you think of Elijah when he fights with the prophets of Baal, and, and they're all trying so hard. They're, they're flagellating themselves to make the fire burn, and it won't. And Elijah comes out, and he pours water on the wood. And he keeps pouring water on the wood, and he prays, and suddenly the fire just erupts. And it's, you're saying, you know, maybe 
maybe this is an eruption for us. You know, it's a way also perhaps of looking at a kind of Pentecostal fire. Uh, the Pentecost uh, has brought us something this year that we hadn't known before, that those tongues of fire have descended on so many people. And it's really pushing them, inspiring them, moving them, animating them, empowering them. So we're not without prophecy. We're not without prophecy. But but this time, maybe the prophets are spread around. They're not just concentrated so we can you know, flick off one and flick off another, but they're, they're just con they're, they're just diffuse. They're just diffuse. Sure. And even in that diffusion though, of course, can raise all kinds of uh, criticisms and people who feel threatened. And you mentioned the tearing down of the monuments, which has, you know, as we've kind of moved in the course of these protests, we've seen the, the shift from just kind of very specifically narrowly focused on police brutality, but then kind of invited to, to open up and to look more deeply and more broadly at all of the different issues that are connected uh, to that instance, instances of killing of, of people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Uh, so again, we've seen these these statues coming down, including yeah. of uh, St. Uh, Junipero Serra uh, in California, especially recently, people again, who have been uh, important to to Catholics, people of faith. Yes. As you see some of those those monuments coming down, whether his or um, representatives of the Confederacy, what what are your reaction to that? Well, I think obviously that uh, when you when you think of this as sort of infiltrated, particularly through national life, um, that we've just come to accept these, and uh, we've become somewhat inured to them. And you look at that and you say, I say the rejection of these symbols is shocking to some people. Uh, Why should you tear down those symbols that are meaningful to me, someone says. And so some people fight for them without really knowing what they meant and what they meant at the time of their their establishment, uh, their fixing, and also what they convey today to people when they see them. So, so I think, um, you know, part of me is, uh, is, is happy to see some of these statues removed. You could take them someplace and put them somewhere, if you like, um, which, which is fine. Um, but but think, about, think about these Confederate statues. I mean, these are people who made war against your country. This is sedition. And so, so there's a way to, to rethink that. How, how is it? That, that this is all forgotten. Uh, how is it that that way of life is enshrined in our thinking um, as bucolic, as, uh, as uh, nice, as, uh, as a happy way of life? Um, no, it wasn't. Uh, any student of history will say that. And it wasn't happy for anyone in the end. But certainly it was not happy for those people who were enslaved. I think um, I, I hadn't known about Junipero Serra's uh, statue coming down, but I think history is trying to teach us to to get different perspectives and different angles, um, get a different angle on Junipero Serra. I mean, if you read someone like George Tinker on uh, these uh, the the Sioux theologian, uh, you he's a Christian, he's a Sioux, he's a Lutheran Christian. If you read uh, some of his work, uh, you, you get a sense of understanding what people have experienced. Or if we think about people who've been involved in the Catholic, um, the, the, uh, the old mission uh, fund, 
uh, which was called the uh, Catholic Indian and Negro Mission Fund. Hmm? Uh, when you think about that, do we know anything about what happened to uh, indigenous youth when they were taken from their families? I mean, we have a good idea what happened to people in Australia because they've made their experience quite public. But we don't have a really good idea what happened to young people here. Um, Sherman Alexie keeps trying to awaken us in his writing to the experience of indigenous people. There are many people who are trying to awaken us to the experience of mestizo Christianity or to the Christianity of Latinx uh, Catholics, particularly in the U.S. So I think, uh, I think there, there are ways in which we can begin to get different perspectives to understand how different people react to the same, the same symbol. And, uh, and some symbols actually can lose their meaning. Um, and we have to be willing to deal with that when they've lost the meaning that they once had. What they once stood for is no longer something which we can stand for. And I think that's a very difficult step for some people to take. I've also been thinking again in the Catholic context too, not again with these monuments, but even sacred art in places. And think about my my own upbringing, a largely white Catholic settings and different places that I was seeing kind of white European looking Jesuses and Marys pretty much everywhere until I got older and we started to, they would share maybe more things, maybe a, an image would be used in a slideshow uh, in a religious education class or something like that. But um I think, that there, again, all this reckoning that we're, we're starting to do, too, yeah. to think about how we kind of as church have perpetuated things, maybe, again, unconsciously. Yes. Yes. I think, I think the unconscious is really important. We don't question the norms. We don't question the habits. We don't question the symbols. All these are really embedded into our way of operating, whether it's on the social level or on the ecclesial level. And so we don't ask questions. We follow uh, the rules because there are consequences. And we don't think whether or not are those, we don't question whether or not those rules are correct or not, whether those rules might be the best ones that engender our unity as a people on the social level, as the body of Christ ecclesially. So I think there are ways in which um, that, some of these ideas, uh, artistic ideas, have been entrenched in us uh, so that, in fact, uh, we just have unconscious assumptions and reactions to the ordinary. And this kind of permeates, it invades everything that we do, how we operate. And yes, the artist is always free to depict uh, the sacred uh, as she or he uh, receives that inspiration, the way she or he writes an icon, for instance, the way she or he paints uh, paints a picture. And many artists are trying, I think, to, to give us some shifts in our understanding. And I think if we would look at people in the Middle East, not, not European people who've been transplanted to the Middle East, we would see people who are pretty brown, uh, you know, who have pretty curly hair, uh, who, who, who we might want to walk, some of us might want to walk by that person on the street. But, but it's a good, good point to remember that we all learned at one point, I suspect, in you know, catechism or in religious education classes or in the ordinary classroom where you had religion classes every day was integrated into your class, that each one of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit 
And when I look at you, I should be seeing Christ. That's the burden of uh, Jarrett Manley Hopkins' poem, isn't it? I mean, Christ plays in limbs, you know, uh, 10,000 limbs. They're all different, you know, before the Father. There's Christ in that person whom I'm passing on the street. Of course, in addition to some of those unconscious ways that Catholic Church and, and others have perpetuated racism. There have been some pretty overt ways too through our, our history. And again, I think history we're kind of only beginning to reckon with. Again, working for the Jesuits, we're reckoning with our own um, history of slaveholding and, and other racist practices that only kind of now in the past few years really has there been some kind of move toward some reckoning. Just from, from your own study, for folks who might not be as familiar with, with some of that history, are you able to share a little bit uh, about kind of the, the history of racism within the American Catholic Church? Well, yes. I mean, a good resource, of course, I can recommend for that is a history of black Catholics in the United States. And that history is not just written for black people. It's, it's written for anyone who wants to read it. Uh, I mean, I, I read about um, uh, the attempt to exterminate the Jewish people, what we call uh, the Holocaust, the Shohah, because I care about human beings and I care what happens to them. Uh, not because I'm Jewish, I'm not, um, but but I really, I care. So I want to know, I want to understand. And so I think th that book is an excellent, excellent resource. Telling our story tells about racist practices, and it tells about the ways in which racism has functioned in the church un unquestion unquestioningly. I think, um, for instance, it, we we Catholics tend to revert to the immigrant paradigm when we think about Catholic history in the United States, which means we neglect Thomas Carroll, Catholic Thomas Carroll of Carrollton, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and owned slaves. Um, he also was a part of that group that wanted to eventually send all black people out of the country um, just to the colonization society to get rid of them, the American Colonization Society. Um, John Carroll, his cousin, the first archbishop of the United States and Jesuit, who really was also a slaveholder. So Jesuits have worked on their history, particularly through Georgetown in terms of, of slaveholding. But uh, you can ask, we can ask ourselves about, about people who belong to the society. Jesuits can ask that question for themselves. We all know about Patrick Healy. Um, but uh, we also... Uh, can think of other instances where other uh, black men without uh, familial resources and unable to more or less pass as white who were denied ordination, for instance, Augustus Tolton. So we can also think of uh, women religious. So the first uh, religious community of black women in the United States uh, was founded by Mother Elizabeth Lange in Baltimore, Maryland, the Oblate Sisters of Providence in 1824-29. Uh, the uh, Sisters of the Holy Family uh, in New Orleans, uh, 1842. These groups came about because there was no room for these women in the predominantly white religious congregations who, uh, who were operating in the United States at that time. So there are many religious orders uh, that owned uh, owned, in, owned enslaved people and enslaved them. So uh, th this is part of our history. Again, we can say that Georgetown is working to open this up. It's very difficult. It's very difficult for people to admit 
their enmeshment in this, but this was the business, and I say that sharply and clearly, this was the business of the United States. It wasn't just in the South. People who owned slaves uh, might have had plantations in the South, but they also lived in Philadelphia. Uh, the governor of Rhode Island has just made a move to change the name of the state because it is technically known as or legally known as the state of Rhode Island and Ro the state of Providence and uh, the state of Rhode Island and Providence plantations, which uh, is a direct connection to slavery. Uh, certainly, uh, the Brown brothers were uh, involved in shipbuilding which accounts for Brown University. This has all been, been opened up to people. This is not a Catholic university. But uh, even in Massachusetts, where I live, um, we had slaves. There's nothing here that we grow in Massachusetts that needs a labor force of that nature. But Rhode Island had slaves, and so Winthrop, his brother-in-law, they decide that they should have slaves here. It doesn't last very long, but, but it was here. Um, and Boston has become a site of incredible... Uh, places for abolition as well. But uh, the, the church really has been struggling with this, not admitting people to religious communities, not um, uh, re communities that were founded to educate and to minister to uh, people of African descent in the United States were not very welcoming to potential members from the African-American, from the black community. So we have a history of segregated parishes. Unlike churches, um, Protestant churches in the South in the 19th century, which broke, uh, separated over slavery, we didn't do that, but we accommodated it in our ecclesial culture uh, through segregation. Or where there was not possible to have segregation, we asked people, in fact, to uh, sit in different places, to be the last ones in the line for communion. And um, as recently, uh, really, as, uh, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, there are people speaking uh, about uh, encountering that kind of um, resistance uh, on the way to communion, that suddenly for the black person, the cup is covered, and as if there's nothing there. But as soon as the person has moved on, it's opened again to a white person. So, so there are there are practices that that have been reported in our church um, that indicate we we are really struggling. We have been struggling for some time. So our education systems are they are they segregated? What Catholic schools are in our inner cities? Um, are they schools that belong to uh, religious orders that are finding ways to uh, shall we say? Uh, stay there with people and, and to work with them? Uh, or are there ways in which we found ourselves really navigating out of these uncomfortable situations? And if we're navigating out of those situations, we start to navigate out of the education, uh, the education, the, the uh, operation of schools, period, which also means we're not educating young white people to deal with brown and black people as brothers and sisters either. So, so there's, a, there's a lot. I think we could have stronger statements by our bishops about these matters. Um, we, could, we could have stronger uh, preaching in, in the pulpit about these matters. Uh, there are ways in which, uh, which 
we need to speak to this, not because it's out there, but because it's in here. It's in us. Racism isn't something out there that we can fix. It's something that's in our consciousness that we all have to deal with. And I think about, again, growing up in with good religious education setting, you know, with dynamic catechists and nice curriculums, but never really learning this history, right? We would even learn about other Catholic social teaching, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't learn about racism. Or if we did, again, as you're saying, it was out there, not something we had to do with. It was in the past, not something we had to reckon with. I think now we're seeing more and more there, you know, Catholic leaders saying, hey, we, we need to talk about this in some way, leaders and not leaders, not official leaders, saying, let's let's address this somehow. Um, I'm wondering, just based on your own theology, your own work in this area, what are some of the like the theological resources we can draw on uh, as we're kind of maybe approaching this in a new way? What are some of those good places to start? Well, uh, for instance, um, I mentioned uh, Cyprian Davis's book, A History of Black Catholics in the United States. There's also Brian Massingale. Father Brian Massingale is a um, professor of uh, ethics at Fordham University. Uh, Racial injustice in the Catholic Church is one place to start. Um, There's also uh, a book by Dawn Nothweir, which is entitled That That They May Be One, which is a collection of documents uh, across uh, the church internationally speaking to some of these issues. Um, We could uh, recommend Uncommon Faithfulness, which is uh, a collection of essays by Black Catholics about their experience uh, in the church. And uh, it grew out of a conference held at the University of Notre Dame, Uncommon Faithfulness. Uh, those are a few a few resources yeah, uh, and I'm that thinking, are easily available. I mean, these are not out of print. Sure. No, and I'm thinking too. In, in addition to that, like from our own tradition, whether it's again the, the person of Jesus for, in certain scripture places, uh, th- those elements that we could really kind of root some of our anti-racist work in. Are there a particular, whether they're scripture passages or again even elements of systematic uh, theology that again you, you study and written about? Uh, again, thinking about the the title of your most recent book, "Knowing Christ Crucified: The Witness of African American Religious Experience," kind of really rooting that in the crucifixion. Are there kind of elements from our tradition that that you draw on when you approach these issues? Certainly, I mean the obvious um, the obvious uh, parable in in the gospel, of course, is the Good Samaritan, and uh, it's it's uh, the deeper study of that parable unearths the antipathy. Uh, between Jews and Samaritans of the period, that that people had different differing religious interpretations and differing religious practices and devotions, and uh, each thinking that that theirs is the supreme one, same God, uh, but different different interpretations. And it's the person who is outside the circle uh, to whom Jesus is speaking. That person is the one who acts as the neighbor. And so, so I think it's a question of how do I respond to my neighbor? That's a, that's a fundamental, uh, really, question of the gospel. It's, it's um, you know, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew closes with that incredible parable um, when you see the Son of Man coming and asks you, uh, did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you visit the prisoners? Did you tend the sick? And, you know, everyone's separated. You know, we use that, those metaphors of sheep and goats. 
and uh, and and everyone's saying, "Well, gee, I it wasn't me. I I didn't see it was you." And 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 but come, you're invited in. And those who didn't are pushed aside. And the writer, spiritual writer uh, Lewis Evely, has a wonderful turn on that parable in his book, "That Man Is You." And and what he says is. Uh, that as soon as Jesus says, you know, come right in, those people who are uh, the sheep, you know, we're all happy and frisky. We're going. But then Jesus turns to the people who are the goats and says to them, you come too. And then all of us sheep get mad because why? We were doing the right thing. We want to get a reward. And why should they get a reward for not doing the right thing? We have no sense of God's mercy. And that's the real challenge for us, too, at this. I mean, on all, all of our, our reflection together, to have some sense of God's mercy uh, so, that, so that when we have a conversion of heart that, that, and we cling to the mercy of God, that, that the rest of us can also bring you along and, uh, and that, that there can be some humility for us all in, in coming together. I mean, this is this is all very, very difficult uh, because this isn't just a matter of someone not liking a statue or a symbol or some wanting to have uh, a, a black Jesus in their church or a black Mary. We're trying to say to people, we have a lot to learn and unlearn as a nation. And if ever uh, strong and vibrant thoughtful religious leadership was needed. It's needed now. It's needed now. People who can actually speak to us, calm us, uh, uh, enable us to speak to one another in our church. I mean, and I find some of that really rather anemic, rather anemic. When you think about, again, God's mercy and the extent of that mercy to everyone, even people we might not agree with, I, yes. I just think of that kind of in context too with that there's been this, you know, this conversation about do, is there sometimes, uh, is the, is the kind of grace too cheap? Are we rushing people trying to say like, oh, we need to make amends right now. And it's a lot better. So we should just apologize and move on. Right. Um, obviously that the work of real mercy and, and, you know, our extending apologies can't just be lip service, but how do you square those things? Absolutely. That's, that's the point about it's more complicated. Anyone can say, well, I walked, I walked with Black Lives Matter or I marched with Martin Luther King Jr. So what are we doing now? Uh, anyone can say, uh, I made a sign. Uh, I did X, I did Y, whatever it might be. Um, that's, the, that's the burden of white allies don't fail us. That's the burden of saying, I have to figure out how to teach my children. That's the burden of saying, I have to confront people who say things that I, I know are reprehensible and say, do you really think that? Uh, that's, con that's, that's getting with other white people and having a discussion, teaching and helping each other through this is this is a certainly a a preference as a professor through reading, uh, reading a book together, trying to understand, or having small discussion groups to to get at an issue. Uh, there are many different ways, many different ways. Uh, African American Catholics frequently reach out, frequently reach out. Small example: 
but it's made a big difference. Um, our, uh, a few, a uh, couple of years ago, there was a terrific murder in New Hampshire. And the people who were murdered, uh, a couple, husband and wife, they were members of uh, St. Catherine Drexel Parish in uh, New Hampshire. I belong to St. Catherine Drexel Parish in the Archdiocese of Boston. Our church is in Roxbury. And we wrote uh, a letter to this church uh, saying, we're, we're with you in spirit and in consolation and in prayer. We were the only church, the pastor said, who reached out to them. What happens is that we started a dialogue with some people. We started a conversation, an all-white church, a nearly all-black congregation. Black Catholic churches have a Black Catholic ethos and aesthetic, but they're never only Black people in the peace. Everybody is always welcome, and everybody is made to feel at home. So there are ways in which we can reach out to one another over time. So I think, I think this is pastoral leadership. This is lay leadership. The idea for this came from a lay member of our congregation. Our pastor was able to pick this up and communicate with the other pastor. There, there are ways in which this kind of give and take is so absolutely necessary. But if we are thinking of the priest to solve every problem, if we are thinking of the bishop to solve every problem, well, we're badly mistaken. Even as I am speaking about a need for stronger Episcopal leadership, at the same time, cheap, it, it, you're right, cheap grace is easy to come by. But it's the day-to-day -day work and not asking Black people to do your work for you. Racism is not a Black problem. As a structural uh, phenomenon in the United States, it's not our problem. It's not our problem. It's the problem that white people have inherited from a vicious past and have not seen fit to throw off that yoke. That, that's the point. Yes, it's past. It's over and done with. So why are we living out of the past now? Why are we behaving? Young people today, uh, when I taught, I said to young, we talked about this, I say to young people, you are not responsible for what happened 150 years ago but you are responsible for your own behavior. So if you see systems that continue to oppress people and you simply shrug and say, well, but you're benefiting from them, then this is a problem. This is the problem. We have no real systemic teaching on racism in the Catholic church. We have a few papal statements where it's mentioned in a line of other, uh, other issues and ills. And the Pontifical Commission on Justice and Peace has issued a statement many years ago on this. We have some scattered statements by uh, bishops in the 50s on integration and segregation, but we have no sustained teaching. We're all referring back to the notion of Imago Dei, that we're all made in the image and likeness of God, which is made to bear an enormous burden, an enormous burden. Yeah, and that too, I, I've seen lifted up as, the question is, should we be talking about racism more as a pro-life issue? It's like, again, we put a lot onto that, but maybe for some Catholics, that's a doorway in to uh, we think about, hey, if we do believe in the image and likeness of God, as you say, and the, the call to community in which the common good in which all are, are welcomed and supported, then um, 
then that makes sense for us as as a place to start. But maybe that's work for uh, theologians to come or popes to come, right? To to kind of be uh, laying that out in a kind of a more solid way to have something stronger to 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 rely on. That's happening now. Someone at Villanova University is teaching uh, ethics there. Kathleen Grimes is her last name. Uh, is writing on Christ divided how white privilege really has operated to divide the body of Christ. So there are, there are ethicists who are attempting this. There's another person teaching there who's Catholic also, Shanine Williams, who is a historian who is doing a lot of research on the role of sisters, African-American religious women, vowed religious women, their work and their efforts, um, What's, what happened to them, what their stories are, their experiences of racism within predominantly white religious communities. So there's a, there, are, there are gradually, gradually, but this is also one of our deep concerns, uh, the need for, for people to do theology in this way. And there are also, again, a number of, uh, there are some, there are not as many black Catholic theologians as we would like, um, this is an issue for us, uh, and part of it has to do with um, the way in which many Black Catholics uh, have their experiences channeled uh, through school. And if there are no schools, we're, we've already lost people by high school. They're not theology is not something that is going to interest them, and we have to find ways to do so. So I think there there are some there are some real efforts. There are some real efforts. Sure. As we just begin to wrap up here, Dr. Copeland, any final thoughts uh, for us or anything else you wanted to add that we didn't get to? I just think that um, one of the things that all all of us as Catholics need to remember is um, our connection in Eucharist. Um, and this has been problematic for us over the COVID-19, not to be such a physicalist about Eucharist. But we are Christ to one another. And if we are not Christ, if we are not communion with one another, then we can't possibly be Christ's church. Well, Dr. M. Sean Copeland, thank you so much for taking some time to talk. And thank you for, again, all the great uh, work that you have done and continue to do. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Copeland for appearing on the show. Now, here's an examine for racism by the Jesuits Patrick St. John and Christopher Alt. Racism is a sin that grows year-round in the hearts of many. The seeds germinating for more than 400 years in hatred and oppression devastate the black community each time there is a new bloom. America's epidemic of racism is slowly killing the people of God. 50 states in 18 countries have taken part and protests to raise awareness of this epidemic. The pain and anger of the last few weeks leads us to ask, how can we work toward anti-racism in our own hearts, churches, and country? My name is Patrick Saint-Jean. I am a Jesuit and psychoanalyst who lives and teaches at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. And my name is Christopher Alt. I'm a Jesuit who lives in Chicago, Illinois, 
and I work at Christ the King Jesuit College Prep as a social worker. Now, more than ever, I believe Ignatian spirituality is an important means to help each person who desires to live with justice, dignity, and equality seek God in the midst of everything. Through this examine, we will start the work of anti-racism by examining how systemic racism influences our lives and how we practice the sin of racism. In this meditation, we will analyze how our actions and privilege contribute to the destruction of the dignity and humanity of the black community in the U.S. And we ask God to reveal God's self and to remove the veils from our eyes that hinder us from fully seeing black people. Let us open our ears to hear their cries. Let us reflect and bring the fruit of our reflections to God. Let us begin with an awareness of God's presence. Become aware of God's presence. Sense his love and compassion. His love for creation is universal, encompassing the oppressed and marginalized. Notice God's presence. His love for creation in the black community especially in this moment, as black Americans cry out for justice. Ask yourself, when have I failed to notice or respond to the needs of my black brothers and sisters? Have I turned a blind eye to racial injustice? How? Why? How is my compliance, my inaction, and my sense of fear directly or indirectly contributing to maintain this structure? As we strive toward anti-racism, we must not only see God's presence in black communities, but co-labor with our black brothers and sisters to enact justice. Review your participation in system of racism. Now, we review our day through the lens of racism. Review your actions and thoughts with attention of how racism or privilege manifested itself. Often our actions are guided by our self-interests or personal biases which can perpetuate harm. But sometimes we see injustice and choose to detach from it, saying, it's not me, it's not my fight. For example, did you turn away from news about Black Lives Matter protests? Did you stay silent when a family member or friend said something ignorant or racist. As Christians, 
We must recognize that we have been living with the sin of racism for four centuries in our church, and in fact, we benefit directly from it. In our political system, too, power is consolidated among white people. White Americans are sheltered and protected by a system of racism, an inequality that is inseparable from the laws they create. Racism is bound to the DNA of this country. Ask yourself. How have I been complicit in the suffering of my black brothers and sisters? How have I benefited from social and systemic racism today? Think about the community you live in and the social networks to which you belong. How have black people been excluded from those spaces? Acknowledge the rootedness of the sin of racism in your life and truly abhor your sinful tendencies, choices, actions, thoughts, decisions, oppression and injustices against the black community. Examine your emotions. As you review how you have participated in racism, pay attention to your feelings. Do you feel upset, angry, or uncomfortable? Confronting white privilege and racism is challenging. Sit with the discomfort. Feel deeply the plight of your black sisters and brothers and recognize your compliance in this suffering. Pray for guidance. Remember, we have the opportunity for transformation through the merciful compassion of God. Look forward. The environment has a lot to do with how we interact with one another. But a proximity to blackness is not enough to make you anti-racist. Anti-racism requires active training and continuous learning about systemic racism. Ask yourself. How can I leverage my privilege to uproot systemic racism? How can I use my privilege to make space for black voices and other communities of color? How can I open my heart to make room for the transformation to deeper love, which God calls all of us to? Together we pray. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.
AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Mm-hmm.